bonjour, and welcome to The French Way, the podcast about French-inspired wellness for healthy living and sustainable weight loss. I'm Karen Gombo, your French-American host and certified weight loss coach. So grab a coffee and a croissant and let's go. Hi, Allie. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yes. So everybody, I'd like to introduce Allie Dameron, who is a hormonal expert and acupuncturist by trade. Mm -hmm. And I'm thrilled to have her. It's somebody I have personally followed for years. I also worked briefly with her also many years ago, I would say during perimenopause. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. I can't wait for this convo. Yes. So, so you know that I work and most of my listeners are about 40 to 60. And mm-hmm. so I would love your perspective when it comes to maybe what are the challenges of that period of life and mm-hmm. especially how they are being affected by you know hormonal changes and hormonal maybe imbalances during during that yeah. time period. So in this kind of like 40 to 60 range, there's a lot of hormonal shifts that happen. So obviously we first go through perimenopause, which perimenopause is a term that's kind of used to describe the time period of about two to 12 years before we go through menopause. And menopause is just a point in time where we have gone a year without a period, and then we are considered postmenopausal. And so in perimenopause, you know, without getting so far deep in the science, there's actually kind of like four different phases of perimenopause. And so some different things happen. So in the kind of like earlier perimenopause stage, we'll kind of notice our periods changing, right? So maybe they get longer, maybe they get shorter, maybe they get heavier, lighter, more spotting, PMS can pick up again. Some people kind of coin it as like second puberty where, you know, we were kind of flat line, or not flat line, but we were kind of like balanced, I guess, in sort of like this reproductive era, obviously pregnancy, postpartum. But then if we weren't having kids, it should have been fairly normal for a lot of us. And then we start to maybe notice like acne reappearing or breast tenderness or irritability and anxiety, insomnia, those types of things even like before our period. And so we do a lot to treat that and help women get through that. And then as we sort of edge toward menopause, your estrogen level starts to decrease. And so you might start to notice things like vaginal dryness, hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia. As estrogen decreases, we may also start to notice more like abdominal fat or our body compositions changing a little bit. And that's something that's probably been coming on for a while. A lot of women are like, I don't know. I just like woke up and I hadn't changed anything for so long. And all of a sudden I have like this belly pooch and my body composition is different. And the thing is, it's probably not what's changed overnight, but more like these hormones have been changing for a few years and also we lose muscle mass, right? So as we start to lose estrogen, we also are losing muscle mass. It causes some atrophy. And so if we haven't been actively trying to preserve that muscle with eating a little bit more protein, hopefully strength training a little bit, then we start to really lose that muscle mass. And muscle mass is a really metabolically active tissue. And so it helps us to stay in shape. So kind of the kicker here is like, 
the more muscle you have, the sort of easier it is to be a little bit more flexible with nutrition. And the less muscle we have, the less food we just generally need to to stay alive. So I think those are like big changes that happen kind of in this time frame. But I say that as like, you know, these things start to happen gradually, but there it's never too late, right? Like we can always feel better than we do and and maintain our health and even regain health. In my opinion, truly, like at virtually any age. So I think something is always better than nothing. And if you haven't been focusing on it, you know, in your 30s and 40s and you're now in your 50s, like let's get to it now. And we can definitely do fine. Yeah. I agree 100 percent that it's never too late. (laughs) It's never too late to do something and regain control, especially if we're going to have another 30 to 40 years to live. Yes. Why kind of give up, give up just because, you know, something's going wrong. Not that something's going wrong, but because there's all of these changes. What about sleep? Because I know that's a big question or feedback that I get about people can't figure out what's going on with their sleep. Mm -hmm. How does hormonal change affect that? Yeah. So in a few different ways, actually. So one of the biggest ways that I think that this affects sleep, the hormone changes is also simultaneously when we're going through this roller coaster and our hormone, our sex hormones specifically. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, are really changing. We're also in what I call like this era of responsibility, right? Like it's a big era where careers, kids, marriages, mortgages, aging parents, like sort of think about it as like a a bell curve almost of like responsibility. Like we don't have any, and it just like reaches a, a head at some point. And it's usually somewhere in this era. And then, you know, we start to, our kids are empty nesters then. And, and we start to kind of come down a bit from that eventually. But when we're also in this era, your stress hormones increase as well. So things like cortisol, adrenaline, which is our fight or flight response, cortisol is our stress response, and also part of our circadian rhythm. And so sleep is part of our circadian rhythm in the sleep wake cycle. And so when we have a ton of stress, right, our brain, and I want to define stress really quick, because I think a lot of people don't know what stress is. So stress is really our brain is constantly scanning our environment for threats, dangers, scary stuff, ways that you need help coping. And if your brain is detecting, oh my gosh, this is a lot going on, even just like simple overwhelm, right? Which have a lot to do. Your brain will be like, we're not sure that she's coping great with this. Let's kind of help her out here. And when it helps you out, it's doing its job. It's a protective mechanism, but it's producing more cortisol and more adrenaline to help give you kind of that extra edge, right? To help you to make it through. And when that happens, there's chemical changes that take place. So, you know, we think about fight or flight as like, we're being chased by this bear. We get this complete resolution once we're safe everything comes down, has time to come down. And hopefully we don't have like a big event like that for a little while. But in today's culture, you know, even just like notifications, like I just really don't think that our brains have evolved to the place of where we are with technology. And so the notifications, right, are just dinging and buzzing at you all day and emails coming in and we're exposed to just so much information. It's information overload where our brain can't even take that in. We're really probably busier than ever. I talk to women every single day for our one-on-one consults. And I always start the conversation with how's life going? And everyone's just like, oh my God, it's so busy. 
And at some point, like, I think, and you, you kind of talk about this with French culture, like, I think at some point we have to take more control over that. And like, when is like enough is enough, you know, when are we going to like draw the line in the sand and start kind of like withdrawing a bit from some of the extra stuff that maybe we don't have to do because this all impacts sleep. So our brain has to feel safe enough at night to go to sleep. If you think about your ancestors in a cave, if there was any sort of threat outside that cave, they might get so tired. They might doze off a little bit and like kind of fall asleep, but their brain is not letting them get into that deep or REM sleep, right? Like it's going to be like, nope, check and make sure it's okay. Okay. Now you can doze back off again. Okay. Nope. Check and make sure. And so we sort of sleep like that, like regularly, right? Because our brain just doesn't feel safe enough to fully come down. When we're also stressed and adrenaline's rushing around in our system, it's going to change cortisol as well, right? So cortisol, we should get a really big break from that at night so that we're, our system's relaxed, we're able to detox, our blood sugar can get balanced, we produce human growth hormone, we, like I said, detox our liver, our different hormones are produced. There's a whole bunch of things that happen while we sleep. But if our brain doesn't feel safe enough, it's not going to give us that break. And so it's going to slowly keep like giving you a little bit of cortisol to make sure that everything's okay. So that's a big part of sleep issues in this era. But sort of the other kicker about this era is our good hormone progesterone. So progesterone is produced from ovulation and think about it as progestation. And so when we're no longer ovulating or even at the end of perimenopause, when our brain's kind of like, we don't really want to reproduce anymore. We're kind of over this. It starts to get low and progesterone is a hormone that helps with reproduction, but it also is a hormone that is really like a feel good hormone. So it helps us to work on our stress response. It helps us to stress less. It works on our neurotransmitters like our serotonin and GABA, which make us feel happy and relaxed. And so we also are like withdrawing from this hormone too, which helps us with all this era of responsibility. And so it's sort of like a twofold thing here where these hormonal fluctuations in sex hormones can contribute to the increase of stress as well. But then our lifestyle like really just pours on the fire. Because it sounds like what you're describing, it's almost like the perfect storm. It is. <laughs> Which yeah. I hadn't really thought of it like that, but but just listening to you, I'm like, wow, you know, because I think immediately we think of the sex hormones. I hadn't realized that when you're piling on also what happens with the cortisol is how much of it can affect what's going on. Has there been an increase in awareness and knowledge around hormonal health? And is there a way to be more proactive in managing hormonal health? So, yeah, I think to both, actually, I think, you know, I actually got into this specialty because I didn't feel like there was a lot of help. I felt like women were kind of left on their own to their own devices. And like, either there was birth control, antidepressants, if you needed that, or like hormone replacement therapy, which Hormone replacement therapy, they're coming out with so much research on that. And there's actually some amazing benefits of that. There's also people who should never take hormone replacement therapy. So that's a really just nuanced conversation that I'm not for or against. It's just looking at each individual, I think. But I also am a huge advocate of 
not using medications, hormone replacement therapy, herbs, and supplements as the only thing that we're doing. Like we got to get the lifestyle things in check, the stress, the nutrition, the movement, the sleep, we got to get those things working for us as well to be holistically healthy. Otherwise we're, we're sort of honestly like slapping on a bandaid, to be honest. Yes, I do think that. And yes, I do think that proactively there's a lot we can do. And I think, you know, as we get more savvy with hormones and gut health and all of this stuff, it never actually ceases to amaze me that when I study like functional medicine testing or new things about hormones or hormone replacement therapy or any of this like deep science stuff, it's amazing. And we're learning about all these new things, but then at the end, it's always like, okay, so like, what do we do about it? Right. All of these different changes. And it never ceases to amaze me that zooming back out, eat your vegetables, get your fiber, get your protein, sleep. We got to focus on our nervous system. And if we're constantly feeling like we're in a burning building that causes these chemical changes where like sex hormones are not going to work quite right. Your inflammation is going to be increased. It impacts every aspect of your GI system, your neurotransmitters. Like there's so many things that that stress response impacts that managing that, and we can talk about that if you want to, is imperative as well. So in my opinion, like for proactive, all of that is really important. And I always tell my patients like, yes, there's going to be a hormonal shift in likely our late forties, fifties, somewhere in that era, we have to control what we can control just because it happens doesn't mean it has to be terrible. If the other things are in place and things are working well, you're probably going to fare much better than if your stress is out of control. You don't eat vegetables. You don't move your body. You don't sleep. You subsist on caffeine and sugar. Like that's going to make it a lot worse. So I can only agree also because it was my experience is I haven't had major issues, you know, in perimenopause. And, you know, of course there were things that happened, but I felt that being proactive about aging and being proactive about our health and the changes that we put into place, there's no reason that it has to be terrible. And, and so I think that as much as we can't control it all, and I'm not saying we should, I think that with the weightlifting and the vegetables and, and least attention to stress and movement, I went through it personally with flying colors is the way I look at it. And And it doesn't have to be this, this horrible experience in midlife kind of what are the first things? I mean, you, you talked about the vegetables and the fiber and and the sleep, but if there is like one or two major changes that you regularly recommend for women to make immediately, like what has the most impact to kind of, to, to help, or maybe support during this season of life? Yeah, no, that's always a great question. So, I mean, two like really quick things to do would be to incorporate vegetables into your life on a daily basis. And I always just tell people to increase. So we talk about what they're currently doing. So if they're doing none, could we add one or two servings a day? If they're doing it at two meals a day, could we get usually breakfast? Could we get a little bit of uh, vegetables into breakfast? And so I just increase from like what they're doing if, if needed, if that's an area that we need to work on. Secondly, in my opinion, like walking, there's so much research now that shows how important and how amazing walking is. I just read an article 
yesterday about how walking decreases your risk of age-related mortality by 50%, getting between mm. eight to 10,000 steps a day. Like that's huge. That's like the best insurance policy that I've ever seen. And so I think those two things are huge for you. I think that they'll create more resilience to everything, right? The chemicals we're exposed to, the stress we're exposed to, the lack of sleep, all of those things. I also think a bigger thing, and I, I, you know, forgive me for saying this a million times, but it's just so important is truly the stress. And I, I didn't add that first because that's a bigger can of worms of like what this looks like for people. But I actually have people start with like, one of the books I'm reading right now actually is an amazing book. It's called Building a Non-Anxious Life by John Delaney. And it talks about like what we need to do. And number one is like to face reality. And so many people ignore things, repress things and whatever, but like your body knows, your body knows what's happening. And that's what's sounding off these like adrenaline, like, Hey, this is really bad. This doesn't feel right. Like whatever. And so one of the things that I suggest to do is to take some time, sit with yourself and ask yourself, what about life is making it so hard? And that can be scheduling. That could be relationships. That could be aging parents. That can be both things that you can control and things that you cannot control. And it doesn't matter. Just ask yourself the open-ended question, what about life feels so hard? What am I just tolerating? Like those are, that's another prompt and get it out so that you can actively look at the problem instead of just like treading water or sort of like subsisting in this burning building. Like, let's just look and see what it is. Let's full front. And then from there, I tell people to kind of like divide it into things you can control and things you can't control. So we can't control other people, can't control other people's reactions. We can't control a lot of things, but we could control like, Hey, this part in my day is really horrible every day, like getting the kids breakfast or getting the kids to bed. And then from there, obviously we still have to do those things, but how could we tweak that? How could we make it better? Could we delete something that we're doing there? Could we get up earlier? Could we ask the kids for help? Like, how can we make that part of the day better? Because in my opinion, it's like the level of stress that we have and therefore the level of stress hormones that we have, we just need to reduce the dose. Like, you know what I mean? Even just like feeling overwhelmed with getting the kids up to school can feel, I mean, a lot of people, myself included at a point, start their day in fight or flight. They're just opening their eyes and just like, it's just all there. And so how could we change that so that you can have a little bit more peace in your life? When it comes to stress and what you just said, so there are things that people can do to either do delegate or organize their life differently. There are things that they can't control. Mm -hmm. So do you find it's hard for people because it's also a mindset question is how do you accept things that you can't control? Is it something that you find with time people actually set aside those things that they can't control? Is it a skill that they can learn to manage that part of the stress? So I believe it's a skill we can learn. There's this idea in our brain called neuroplasticity, which means that our brain can learn and change. 
And a great example of that is, I mean, we have a million examples, but like learning sixth grade history, like we learned that we knew it, we studied for the test. We have not learned that or used that information. If we haven't for decades, we don't have access to that the same way that we did in sixth grade. Our brain has unlearned that because it's deemed it sort of like non-useful, right? And so same thing goes with our mindset. If we are a perfectionist, if we're a people pleaser, if we're type A, if we're a catastrophizer, I have been all of those things. So I, this has been like my own journey and my life's work too. That's the lens at which you're viewing your life through. So let's take perfectionism, for example. A lot of people that are perfectionists like a lot of control and hate uncertainty too. And so that sort of leads into that person with that personality characteristic has a lot more things that they can't control that are like eating them alive than someone like my husband who is not that way. And he's just very much like, I can't control that. So I'm just not even going to worry about it. Uh, That is not me at all. For me, the perfectionism is a way that I view my life through. And so, uh, especially when I was like in the thick of it. And so when things aren't perfect, my brain thought, this is scary, dangerous, unsettling. This is a bad thing. And so it would produce all of those stress chemicals. And so the idea is self-awareness first to realize that these things are not self-serving. The people pleasing is a trauma response. The perfectionism is a learned trauma response. Being type A, like let's learn that that's what's happening and accept that that's where we're at today. But let's also try to change. And so what that looked like for me was with perfection, calling it out every time I noticed it. And I didn't notice it every time. It took some time to learn this, but saying, nope, this is you being a perfectionist. This is not based on reality. Or like, this is you catastrophizing the situation, thinking the worst case scenario. If I was focused on a situation that like really didn't impact me that much, or I couldn't control recognizing that and saying like, does this affect you? Can you control this? And it's hard. It's really hard work. I'm like very much oversimplifying it here uh, because your brain is very much stuck in those own pathways, like those own thought processes, but bringing it back and over time, like practicing, practicing, practicing it. Like we learned history, like we learned to walk, like we learned to ride a bike, but to practice that over and over and over. And over time, it becomes easier to say, nope, you're being a perfectionist now. Like that's not, that's not true. That's your brain trying to feel safe. And so, so much about nervous system regulation and therefore stress management is about our thoughts and about keeping our brain feeling safe. I mean, I agree 100%. And it's, I think learning that skill, it's, it's completely possible. And because I've always, you know, I was also a perfectionist, very high achiever, And it cost me a lot of things also with my health and through my career. So, and I fully agree that the first step is awareness. And afterwards, it's also noticing that that's what the thought is. And like you said, seeing yourself or seeing that behavior as that perfectionist or seeing that behavior as controlling or people-pleasing. So it's possible. So I agree with you. It's work. It doesn't just happen overnight. I hear what you're saying. And um, just for our listeners, I think it's also encouraging to say it's possible that you don't have to be a victim of all of those, that self-judgment or those, those personality traits for forever. I think it's about, at least for me, so much of the journey was like learning why it was there. 
And that can get deep and that could be the work of a mm. therapist because all of that stuff is learned. Like we were not mm. born a perfectionist. We were not born a people pleaser. We were not born a high achiever. We learned that we got accolades from being a high achiever. And so, hey, if I want to be accepted into this family, I better achieve high. And so we felt more accepted and more like belonging is a human need. And when we're a kid, that's like a, a basic need. And yeah. so, you know, we, we need to, to figure out how we're going to feel accepted and belonging. And for a lot of us, we are the, the goodest, the good kid, the people pleaser, always trying to manage our parents' emotions or our siblings' emotions or the high achiever, the one that our parents can be proud of. Like that's sort of like our identity. And from there, we just continue with that identity through our adult life too, even though we're out of that childhood situation and we have more control now. Uh, So for me, it was imperative to just kind of like understand that it was a safety mechanism. And like, I had a really great childhood. I didn't have anything horrible happen as a child at all, but you know, it just was the family dynamic. And that's just where I found my place to be that kid. And so that's just kind of like where it led me. Yeah, I can relate. So, okay. So stress is obviously very big thing. So that's usually, is that where you start? Because we talked about the veggies, which interests me and the walking also. So I just like to know why veggies are so important and why the walking is so important. So vegetables, I think are important because they have lots of micronutrients, right? So our fiber, our minerals, our vitamins, our enzymes, our antioxidants, obviously different colors of fruits and vegetables have different properties and and vitamins and minerals to them, but that the vitamins and minerals are like spark plugs for our body. So that's every single thing, metabolic process that your body does needs cofactors, which are vitamins and minerals to do that. So like, for example, your liver, our liver is a filtering organ. It filters out chemicals, environmental exposures, hormones, anything that we're exposed to your liver has to get that out your liver to filter right and to work well needs things like B vitamins, amino acids, which is actually more of a protein thing, which is debatable whether veggies or protein are first, but I was both veggies, amino acids. It needs choline. So there's different things that like your liver needs to do its function. And if we're stressed all the time, eating really nutrient devoid foods, it doesn't have what it needs to work well kind of like, it's always interesting to me, like that we need scientific studies for these things, but it's really interesting. So I've read a lot of scientific studies about how important walking is. They've thought about like the blue zones. There's a lot of research being poured into the blue zones of the world and why those people are centurions and all of these things. And like movement, they live on like rugged terrain. Usually they farm, they move, they do manual labor. And so they think that that's obviously among connection and food quality, that that's one of the biggest reasons that they live so long. Truly like walking does everything for us. It can help with our mental health. It can help with our nervous system, but it helps with cardiovascular health. It helps with your lymphatic system, helps detox. It helps your GI system. It helps blood circulation just everything that you could get. It's really, really helps. It helps with heart disease, metabolic disease, like diabetes, so, so many different things. And so I just am like, 
from there, let's just get our, our steps in first. And then we can talk about, you know, strength training. And it obviously depends on goals of people, but if you just want to be healthy and have longevity, I truly do believe that those are two keys to it. Yeah. And I think that also what I like about it is there, it's also simple, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, you don't have to spend a lot of money. It's just making some basic changes. And I love the the idea on the veggies of just adding an, another portion, like start from where you are and just increase. And the walking and, and the stress, there are things that you don't need a lot of, you don't need to buy anything, you know, to, to, to do it. So I think it's- I think um, with like the strength training and- So, you know, you and I talked about this before, but there's so many like rules and people are just so unsure, Mm -hmm. like even with strength training, well, it's like, well, how many days and what type of weights and do I do Mm -hmm. barbells or or free weights or do I do like a bar class with resistance training or like how many reps do I do? Do I do the eight reps or the six reps or do I do 15 or 12 reps? Like there's just so many questions there and such a barrier to entry. I think for so many people, especially a lot of us have not been ever taught how to lift weights. We have been taught to go to cardio classes and do the fun stuff like that. And that's easy, which is great. Walking is easy, but strength training does have a learning curve to it and a bit of a barrier to entry. You want to make sure that you're doing it safe and effectively. And so I I never really start there. I encourage it. I think it's important. And I think it does a lot of great things that, you know, at the end of our perimenopause, when that estrogen's low, that can create that atrophy, like I was talking about. And so strength training can help preserve lean muscle mass, which is great for things like even Alzheimer's and dementia, but also things like osteoporosis and osteopenia. Like there's some considerations there. And I really aim to get people going on that, but yeah, we got to be careful about, there's just a lot more to do there. I think a lot more questions, a lot more entry. And one of the hot topics that has been around also for, for several years, and I would love your opinion on this because I know there's a lot of varied opinions on the topic is fasting Mm -hmm. and women in midlife. Do you have an opinion today and has it changed? So, yeah, I guess it probably has changed to be honest. I'm trying to think back in like, 2016, 2017, I was like, I did fasting and I was obviously seven years younger or eight, I guess, but I was kind of newly postpartum. And like I said, I am full admittedly a perfectionist type A people pleaser. And so, like I mentioned by nature, my body is just, my brain is just more hypervigilant. I'm just a more stressier person. And it's something that I really have to work on every day. And so part of the thing about nervous system regulation is trust with your body. And so for fasting, if you wake up at 6 a.m. and do a workout, because that's when a lot of people can fit it in, and your body is vying for food and sending you those signals, we're hungry, we're hungry, we're hungry, for like four hours, you're going to create a stress response. Your body's going to be screaming at you and being like, why aren't you doing what I'm asking? And so for me, and I've seen this with, I've probably treated hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of women who have fasted, uh, if not in the thousands by now, over this, this time period. And I truly have found most people, some sooner than others, 
eventually end up in a place where their stress response is dysregulated and or blood sugar or thyroid, actually. One of the three or all three usually get to a place where it's not great. And again, I think in America, when we talk about fasting, it's a very much like black or white, like either you're doing the 16, eight protocol or you're not fasting. And like, I think doing some digestive rest is fantastic. I think 12, 13 hours. And I guess I've gotten to the place now with my patients where I'm like, okay, let's, let's learn to trust ourselves. Let's learn to listen to the biofeedback. If your body is starving, please feed it. That is like a, a trust thing with ourselves. And I also just, you know, from a more like scientific place, in my mind, working out at 6 a.m., drinking coffee, going to work, getting the kids out the door, whatever you're doing, that tends to be a stressor part of the day anyways. And then not eating for, some people don't eat for six hours after that. Like, I just don't feel like that can be good. I feel like women need to eat after they work out at some point. And again, it doesn't have to be within 30 minutes, like these rules, but like (laughs) within a a bit, right? Like once we get hungry, I I think you should eat. I think that starting your day with no food, caffeine and fasting in a stressful environment is just a recipe for a lot of stress, a lot of stress chemicals. No, because it's interesting also, I think what you just said about learning to trust your body and and find what works for it. Because for my personal case, at one point in time, I did a lot of fasting and then I found it just wasn't working anymore. I, I, I was working out very heavily and waiting. It just was not serving me. So I think it's finding what works for you and being, I think, curious also about what works for your body or not, knowing how to listen to your body or not. You know, and I don't have the stresses also that, you know, with the kids now and, and, and I work from home. So it's a little different. I found a lot of benefits personally, but it has changed depending on that moment in life. So I didn't know what the. So notice for myself that like, it changes day to day. Like there's Mm. times that I'm a lot more hungry earlier. And there's times that I'm like, oh, wow, it's a little bit later today. Like I'm not really feeling very hungry. I think a lot of factors impact that. And so I think it's just to your point, like just being willing to be curious on like, is this serving me or am I just white knuckling it and staring at the clock until I can eat? Like, like we don't need to do that. There also is research actually that shows that our stomach acid bile and enzymes are the highest for digestion from the hours of 7am to 9am. And so your body's actually ready to eat food at that point and can, and can work really well to digest food. Then I think it's just looking at the individual. I also think there's people who are like, I am not hungry at all for breakfast. Like it really grosses me out. I'm really not ready to eat food until like 11, 12, one, those people. I also take an extra peek at, because if you're really like food makes you sick in the morning, there's probably a lot of stress hormones going. Like you're probably really running on cortisol because if you think about it, like if we're really stressed, if we're being chased by an animal, it's going to turn those hunger hormones off because it's like, we can't deal with food right now. This is too scary of a situation. And we've all felt that when we've been really stressed, just our appetite's gone. Um, And so I always just kind of take into consideration that too. And you know, a lot of people who come to me that want to lose weight, like actually do have that where they're just like, I just feel disgusting in the morning. I can't eat. 
And I always tell them a goal of mine would be to get you feeling some hunger earlier than noon. Like 9am would be fine, but some hunger a little earlier in the day would be good. It shows that your metabolism's kind of up and going, your body's functioning right. Just to feel zero hunger is, in my opinion, not maybe the greatest thing. Could you maybe talk a little bit about, because metabolism and metabolic functioning of the body is also, you know, I think women just have also a preconceived idea, but I, you know, I love your opinion to, you know, they'll say my metabolism has slowed down. I'm never going to be able to lose the weight. There's nothing I could do about it. What's your point of view on that? So research shows that our metabolism actually does not shut or slow down at all until age 60. And at that point it's 1% a year. However, what's happening is that your muscle mass is going down. And so it feels like, and just to even like objectify this a little bit, like maybe through our thirties and forties with our current activity level, like everything staying the same, we could maybe handle something like 1600 calories or let's, let's increase it 1800 calories a day. Um, and that's where we could maintain. We felt really good, full satiated biofeedback was good. But then maybe like, as we started to get to 55 years old or 50 or kind of post-menopause somewhere in there, we started to notice that we started gaining weight on the exact same amount of calories. And the thing is it didn't happen overnight. It was like this 10 years of a decrease in muscle mass that we just sort of like started losing it a little bit. I also, like I said, estrogen keeps us insulin sensitive. So obviously we want to be sensitive to insulin, not resistant to it. And so there is a higher propensity to insulin resistance when there's less estrogen and less muscle mass, but that's not your metabolism. That's not something that we can't avoid. And I think you're a a poster child for this. You don't just have to say, well, I can't have the body composition that I want. I mean, maybe if it's near twenties, like maybe you shouldn't go back to that, but if it's like, you know, something that you've been for most of your adult life, just because you hit menopause doesn't mean that it has to go out the door, but it does mean that we probably need to increase protein. We need to increase strength training, and we need to get that stimulus on that muscle to kind of produce muscle so that we can become more metabolically active again. I think also movement is a huge one. You know, I thought about it, you know, even the other day, my son was playing basketball in a, a high school gym and when my kids practice, I try to get steps in at that point. And I was just like walking up and down the high school hallway. And I was like, you know, even in high school, like you think about kids is sitting down all day, sitting in class, but like in high school, I mean, I had to walk between classes every 45 minutes. That's a whole heck of a lot more than we're walking now. And so I just think if you truly dial into to each decade of your life, like we just move especially in America, so much less. The pandemic really did a number on that as well. But yeah, I think you have to be, again, kind of going back to that reality, you might have to to work differently. I also think that exercise intensity is different than our 20s. I certainly exercise a lot differently and harder in my 20s and 30s than I do now. And so I think all of that stuff just, just makes a difference. I would agree. And I think that what I try to promote is consistency because that's where, you know, I think a lot of people give up very 
early on when they don't see change. And I see it as like planting a garden. (laughs) You know, you've got seeds, you're going to water them, you're going to fertilize them. It's going to take a while before that flower, you know, pushes through the soil. And, and so people get so frustrated, but you know, I have more lean muscle mass now than I've ever had in my life. And I'm 53. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's just five years of consistent strength training. Yep. And I think that people underestimate that consistency because they're, they're so worried about immediate results. I couldn't agree more. I I actually also have more muscle mass than I've ever had in my own life too. And I was a, I mean, I've been a personal trainer for 18 years, but I spent a lot of my twenties and early thirties, like kind of running. And I'd like dabble into strength training and be like, Oh, I don't think it's like working. I didn't have like the Instagram like body. So I was like, I don't really like this, but honestly, I, and I tell my patients this too. It's like your body composition is sort of like well, so for weight loss, it's days and weeks at a time of what you've been doing to see even like two pounds of weight loss. Like if you think about truly the number of calories you need to lose a pound, it is like over days and weeks. And yes, you may get the, the initial like surge in weight loss from losing some water weight and inflammation once you clean things up a bit, but, but yes. And then I also think for strength training, I've also personally just had to like settle in. It is one of those things where like you just do it and do it and do it and do it. And I do it three times a week, maybe four occasionally. And it's just kind of like one of those things where like report back in a year or two and see if you're better and then like keep going and report back in five years. And people just, our society just hates not having instant gratification. And that's something that we really struggle with. But I always kind of pose the question for my patients too, of like, what's the alternative? Like, you don't want to do this. You're frustrated. I get it. It is frustrating. It's a very slow process. And it's very, you know, like with food, if you're kind of like in that weight loss or fat loss phase, you do have to pay attention. And it's something that you have to pay attention to forever. You can't just do like the six week or 12 week or or one year even like program and then like go back to your old weight. Like that's just, you're never going back to your old ways. So we got to make this enjoyable enough that you can stick with it. I I do always just kind of pose that question of like, you could do the low carb or slash your calories to 800, but are you keeping yourself there forever? No, No, Um, it's not sustainable. And I think that that's, if we want to age, you know, gracefully, then and the sustainability of, of what we put in place is, is extremely important. So I guess what I'm taking away also from the conversation is that women don't have to be scared of aging, that there's so much knowledge also now when it comes to hormones, hormone health, and there are also very simple things that can be put into place to help women through this season of life. Is that a, is that a pretty... Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I think so. I think, and I think, you know, you can speak to this. You kind of spoke to this on my own podcast, but we just overcomplicate it so much here, like just so much. And everyone's sort of looking for like the magic strategy, I think. And there just isn't one. There truly isn't one. It's just to your point, just kind of like doing the boring basic things that we all know that we're all kind of trying to bypass But yes, if you do do those things and you have some hot flashes, you have some night sweats, you have, 
vaginal dryness, you have insomnia, like we've come so far and there's so many things to do. So no, you don't have to just feel like garbage. You're a poster child for thriving postmenopausal. And I think everybody can have that. I do too. Okay, great. So tell us, where can we find you and how specifically do you work with your clients? Yeah, so you can find me everywhere online. I have a YouTube channel that's kind of a library of just different hormonal food exercise mindset type topics. I have a podcast called The Allie Dameron Show where we chat about all these same things. I have an Instagram where I try to provide a lot of education there too. And then in terms of what I offer for working with me, I have a digital course called Heal Your Hormones Masterclass, which is a group coaching course. And then I have one-on-one consultations where I work with people in a one-on-one capacity. We do an initial 50-minute consult where we talk about goals and like I said, your lifestyle, your stress, your symptoms, what you've tried, and then come up with a good comprehensive treatment plan and then as needed, you get support as we go to. So, yeah. Okay. Great. And th- all of that is available at alidameron.com. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's a free training for the course um, uh-huh. that you can watch first. It's called How to Balance Your Hormones for Better Mood, Sleep, Energy, and Periods. And so, if you're dealing with any of those things, it's a good core, it's a good little mini training for you to kind of get some ideas about what to focus on, what your doctor might be missing, why so many women struggle with this, all the kind of stuff we talked about today. Okay. And I will post all of that in the show notes. This has been great. It's such an important topic. And I I think we never talk about it enough and there's so many myths out there. So I'm really, really happy that you you know, spent, and we could have spent hours talking about the the subject, but (laughs) thank you you know, very much. Anything else that you want to add before we close oh, off? I, I think we're good. I think we had a, a great conversation. Hopefully this, you know, I just like to give people like education, empowerment, and honestly, like permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are kind of my things of like, you can have this. It doesn't have to be hard. You can do this. Great. Well, thank you very much, Allie. My pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. If you're loving this podcast, be sure to follow so that you don't miss any episodes. Au revoir et à bientôt.